Want to talk more about budgets? No, never <laughs> ever again. Do I talk and you've really been going hard at those hearings. <laughs> I was I was in there for eight hours yesterday. Oh. It was too too long to be in that fucking place. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, in the days immediately following the death of a 16-year-old autistic juvenile who died while in custody, the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office sought several search warrants in order to dig deeper into the teenager's past. At a budget hearing this week, the New Orleans Office of Inspector General outlined a wide range of investigations and audits it has planned for city departments and agencies, including into several that have come under fire in recent months. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel. Hi, Nick. Hey, Kayla. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Hello. And Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Nick, first up with you, in early 2020, a severely autistic 16-year-old died in police custody after being restrained for nine minutes in a parking lot. After his death, the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office conducted searches into the boy's background, allegedly to protect themselves from litigation, according to attorneys who filed a wrongful death suit against JPSO. Tell us about Eric Parson and what happened. Yeah, Eric Parson was a 16-year-old severely autistic uh, child. And in January of 2020, he was at a laser tag facility with his parents. Um, they were leaving and in the parking lot, and he had a meltdown. And, and this is something that was related to his autism. Um, he he began hitting himself, and he began hitting his father and, and bit his father. Um, and Eric Parso was was a very large 16-year-old. Um, he, he was obese and, and you know, quite tall. Uh, and and so someone who was in the laser tech facility saw this taking place and um, with the, his parents' permission called the police who then responded. And it was a JPSO deputy who initially arrived at the scene and, and there's some surveillance footage and, and Parsa is hitting him as well before the deputy puts him on the ground um, and, then, and then sits on him and is able to get him handcuffed but then remained sitting on him for for several minutes and, and then several more JPSO deputies arrive and uh, the one who is sitting on him switches places with another one and they remain sitting on him for, like you said, around nine minutes, um, at which point Eric Parsa eventually becomes non-responsive and, and then is taken to the hospital and, and pronounced dead uh, shortly after. Um, so that's kind of the broad outlines of, of what occurred and there's a... Uh, a lot of dispute over over what exactly caused his death. There's now a wrongful death suit against JPSO where uh, uh, his lawyers for his parents are claiming that they were responsible. The coroner ruled it an accident. Um, so so that's kind of the outline of what happened. Had EMTs ever been called? Were they en route or anything? Do you know about that? I'm not sure exactly when the EMTs were called. Um, I believe at some point during the during the time when he was restrained, the lawyers for his parents argue that the deputy should have known to basically once he was once he was restrained and handcuffed and actually put in leg shackles as well, should have been moved to a recovery position and, and deputies should not have been sitting on him for for that long. Um, you know, one of the deputies was was quite large himself and to have 
that amount of weight on top on someone as they're being um you know held on their chest and in, in on on the concrete uh the lawyers argued should have the deputy should have known that 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 was um potentially fatal mm. so after he died really quickly after that jpso sought and received several affidavits to dig into his his schools his education his medical records tell us about all those search warrants that they sought and received. Right. So immediately following his death, uh, JPSO opened up a use of force investigation um, that was conducted by the homicide unit in, within JPSO. And one of the things that they, they did right away was draft affidavits for warrants into Eric Parse's medical records, his uh, school records, his full school records from his high school, um, as well as some medical records for, from, for his father, from the incident. And these, these were pretty wide ranging requests. You know, his school records included things like his grades, a list of his teachers, any surveillance video of him in his classes or, um, you know, and, and any disciplinary reports and things like that. And so there's a few kind of questions that his parents are raising about these warrants in this wrongful death suit. One is is just the legality of the warrant themselves. Generally, to get a warrant, there needs to be probable cause for a crime. Um, and, you know, JPSO was saying they were investigating this in-custody death, but on none of the warrants did they actually list a specific crime that they were investigating. Um, and in addition, in, in deposition, several JPSO deputies said, you know, sure, we were investigating this death generally, but we never really suspected that any of our deputies committed a crime here. So lawyers for his parents are arguing that, that these warrants were unconstitutional, that they should have never been issued if, if JPSO, you know, what didn't have a specific crime that they were investigating. So that's kind of the legal aspect of it. But then you have the broader question of why were JPSO deputies interested in this boy's past if they were investigating these deputies for, um, a potential use, you know, wrongful use of force. Um, and that's kind of where I think a number of the the people I talked to for this story said, you know, what do his grades have, have to do with whether or not this use of force was justified? Um, and really what it looked like to them was that JPSO was digging up dirt on this, you know, teenager so that they could paint him as a violent and troubled kid in order to better uh, protect themselves from a, a wrongful death suit like the one that was eventually brought by his parents. So they're almost uh, tacitly acknowledging that they're, they're sort of bolstering their case for what they assume is an inevitable challenge to how they treated the situation. Is that what the, the attorneys are sort of arguing? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, they're arguing that, that JPSO knows that, that this is likely going to result in a lawsuit, that, um, that this was a questionable use of force, and that rather than, you know, honestly investigate their deputies, um, you know, and ask questions about their training and ask questions about whether or not they should have known that sitting on, you know, uh, an overweight kid for, for nine minutes had the potential to, to be fatal, um, instead, they went and and decided that the most important thing was to, you know, find any instances in which this kid may have been violent in the past, um, 
or to question whether or not uh, his parents were providing accurate information to the deputies when describing uh, the severity of his autism. Mm. Um, so that, that's that's kind of the, the big question. And JPSO did, you know, finish this use of force investigation and found that their officers hadn't done anything wrong. Um, but the investigation really does tend to focus on Parse's own history and, um, you know, his development with autism and, and instances in which he had violent outbursts in the past, but really does not dig at all into the pasts of any of the deputies involved, um, does not get into their disciplinary histories, mm. does not get into their past uses of force, and doesn't even really discuss, you know, their trainings or what or what they should have known. All the judges that signed off on these warrants, what does it suggest that may be happening? I guess it's just so, it seems so strange that judges would sign off on on what is purportedly an internal investigation into the conduct of these officers. How do they justify these requests into this man's, this young, young man's personal background? Well, three judges signed off on warrants related to the in-custody death investigation, and they were in three different parishes, uh, one in St. Charles for his school records, um, one in Jefferson Parish for his medical records, and then uh, one in Orleans Parish for a surveillance video that was aired by WWL-TV. Yeah. Um, and and the none of the judges responded. I reached out to all of them to, to kind of ask them about this. Um, none of them responded, but... I, Lawyers for his parents did object to one of the warrants, the warrant in St. Charles Parish for his school records, and there was actually hearing on it. So we got to see a little bit of the arguments and the reasoning from the judge. And, you know, what the judge ultimately decided was that despite the fact that JPSO claimed that there, you know, didn't identify a specific crime, the fact of the in-custody death, that the fact that there could have been a crime there potentially was enough, you know, for him to say that 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 these school records might re- be relevant to their investigation. And, you know, I think that obviously lawyers for his parents and the civil rights lawyers that, that I talked to for this story, uh, uh, you know, seriously disagree with that reasoning and say, you know, there needs to be a, a lot more than that for, for a search warrant to be issued. Um, but that's what, you know, that's what the judge decided. And I think, you know, what, what they would say is that we, there, are, there are these judges that give serious deference to law enforcement. And when law enforcement comes and says, right. you know, we need this information for an investigation, there's, there's not a lot of scrutiny, um, regarding what that information is going to actually be used for and whether or not they actually have established the, the, you know, the legal standard of probable cause that, that, that they need. And presumably, if this if this goes to trial, presumably another judge, yet another judge, will be the final uh, arbiter of whether this actually was a justified warrant. In other words, the findings from what they achieved through the warrants would be thrown out if it's not applicable to the case, right? Won't a judge say, or a a lawyer will argue, you know, this is irrelevant, like that his school records are irrelevant to this case, and a judge will agree or not. Yeah, well, that's that's interesting, and I'm I'm actually not quite sure how that will play out, because 
certainly in a criminal case, if a warrant was, if if evidence was found to have been gathered without probable cause um, and, and gathered illegally in a criminal case, that evidence would be thrown out. Yep. I'm not sure how it would work if a federal judge found that these warrants were improperly signed off on um, by another judge, whether or not that would bar the evidence from, from being, being entered into a civil case. Right. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure actually how that works. Yeah. But lawyers for his parents have, have filed a motion specifically asking the judge to find these warrants unconstitutional, despite and, the fact that they were signed off by, by, by these judges. And so therefore anything that, that comes of them or that came of them is, is immaterial can't be well, submitted. Really what, they're, what they're asking is is the judge to find that these warrants violated the civil rights of oh. Parsa's parents as an invasion of privacy. So in and of itself, um, that's the case. That's part of the case. Precisely. Okay. All right. Uh, what's next? What's happening yeah. right now? The trial is set, but it's not set for, for until next year. But the judge can kind of rule on this motion related to the warrants at any time. Um, but... She doesn't need to. So it, it's kind of an open question whether or not we're going to see a ruling on this um, before things sort of start picking up uh, when when the the actual trial might might take place uh, next year. So oh, the, uh, the, we just don't know. The judge who this is in front of this question is in front of <clears throat> doesn't need to decide this on this, this. She doesn't need to make this decision for the whole thing to go forward. No, I mean, she could make this decision, I think, during the trial um, or really, really at any point. Um, it, it doesn't need to be resolved before the whole thing to move forward. There's still lots of other questions that um, are, are open. So, OK. OK. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. As a reader of The Lens, you already know that we prioritize truth over profits. Our reporters work tirelessly to produce public service journalism that you can trust because you deserve to have a go-to source for the news that matters most to you. From now through the end of the year, Newsmatch and the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation will match your donation up to $1,000 per individual. We can earn up to $15,000 in matching donations, which means the Lens can raise $30,000 or more in total. Give today at thelensnola.org and help sustain your trusted source of news. Thank you and happy holidays. All right, Michael, at a budget hearing this week, the inspector general outlined his department's plans to conduct audits and investigations into several city agencies, including the city's oversight of short-term rentals, sewerage and water board, and the NOPD. What did the IG outline at the budget hearing? It sounds pretty aggressive. Yeah, so so the inspector general, um, Ed Michelle, he went through you know the list of all the investigations the office has ongoing um, and what it has planned for next year. Um, and, you know, the thing that you really notice is that his office is pretty busy. Um, he's got a lot of investigations going on right now and even more planned for next year. Um, a little history of this office is that in 2020, um, the, the former uh, 
inspector general uh, actually he resigned amid you know all this criticism that the office wasn't producing enough enough reports enough investigations and audits um and i think we've seen this switch since michelle took the role um where you know they've really ramped up the amount of work they're doing um you know again michelle he um he claims that the office has increased its uh, uh its functions over 400% since he took over. Wow. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, it, it, even just with what he reviewed at the meeting, it, it's really expansive. But, you know, he, we were talking after the meeting and he pointed out that there are some investigations that, um, you know, aren't included um, in that presentation because the inspector general sometimes keeps investigations quiet if it might um, you know, be parallel to a criminal investigation if he thinks that, you know, a, a criminal charge might uh, emerge out of it. Um, and so, you know, we, we know of several likely uh, investigations that are going on in the office that aren't being officially officially recognized by his office. So, for example, you know, we, we done a lot of, we've done a lot of reporting on the smart city scandal here, those, those contract fixing allegations um, that kind of rocked the Cantrell administration earlier this year. Um, and, you know, as that was starting to heat up, um, you know, we reported that the inspector general seized computers uh, of employees that were involved in that scandal. Um, now, at the time, you know, the office refused to confirm that there was an ongoing investigation. But, you know, you can make a reasonable assumption when they're seizing computers. So, again, what he announced uh, and, and laid out was expansive. But there's even more going on in that office that, that he wasn't talking about. Yeah. So 400 percent increase over the former IG's output. What what are the things that stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just looking at the list, it, it just kind of seems like an office that is pretty kind of tapped into what's going on in the city. Um, you know, like a lot of the kind of targets of these investigations and audits are also kind of areas of the city that publicly have come under a lot of criticism. So, you know, we, we've reported repeatedly about, you know, the city's lax enforcement of short-term rental rules. Um, that's something he's looking into now. Um, you know, we've uh, done a lot of reporting on the Wisner Trust um, and and the potentially illegal renewal that the Cantrell administration signed in 2020. Um, that's also going to be subject of an inspector general investigation. So again, it, it just kind of seems like the office is being a little bit more proactive, you know, seeing what's going on and then, you know, initiating investigations to kind of follow that. Um, so again, yeah, I mean, it just it's matched up with a lot of our reporting and reporting that, you know, I've been reading for the last couple of years. So, um, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of the main thing that stood out. Did he did he justify this more? Uh, I'm going to characterize it. You don't have to, but I'll characterize it as a bit more aggressive than his predecessor. Did he justify why or is this just a new boss in town or what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I've spoken to him many times over the past couple of years, and, and I think that, um, you know, I, and I asked him after the meeting the other day, you know, when residents read something like this, should they take from this that you're being more aggressive or that there's just way more wrongdoing going on in the city? Hmm. Um, and, and the sense that I'm getting is that really it's it's his approach to the role and to his office. So, yeah, Michelle is a long time law enforcement guy. He, he worked for the FBI for years. And, and I think, you know, he, he's talked a lot about that experience when he talks about this job, about kind of just this approach of really being able to efficiently churn out all these investigations, doing them properly, 
um, and also doing them in a way that, you know, they have some effect because at the end of the day, a report is only a report if there's, you know, no changes mm -hmm. that come after it. So, you know, again, my sense is, is that the, the, in, the, the real big increase we're seeing in activity is more about the change in leadership um, at the office rather than, you know, what's going on in the city, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And the background for all for this announcement or, or the, the outline that he made of, of what he's doing was the budget hearings. Was this justification for his budget? Was he asking for more money? No, he actually, he wasn't asking for more money during this budget hearing. And I, and I think, you know, one, one thing he wanted to stress is that, you know, th this is the kind of department, um, you know, this is the type of office he argues that, you know, there's a big return on investment. Um, you know, he, the office claims that, you know, they've saved the city way more uh, money than, you know, they've actually spent on the office through pointing out fraud, um, you know, pointing out homestead exemption fraud by recommending changes that could lead to better revenue collection or, or lower costs for the city. So, you know, at, at this stage, you know, he, he has beefed up the office, but but this year he wasn't asking for a budget increase. But again, he was arguing that every dollar that goes into the this office um, really does kind of come back to the city. And sometimes these investigations do result in, in a criminal referral? Yeah. So, you know, we saw in, you know, for instance, in the example of the Hard Rock collapse, mm. um, the office uh, kind of looked into, um, you know, the inspectors who had been assigned to, to the Hard Rock and, and had found that they had kind of fudged some of the paperwork there, had not gone on the scene when they were supposed to and, and had recommended charges in that case. Um, you know, he's worked with District Attorney Jason Williams. Um, so again, th this is a guy that comes from law enforcement background. So, um, you know, you can kind of, you can guess that he has a good eye for when things kind of jump from, you know, maybe a bit immoral or questionable to actually criminal. Um, and, and again, you know, we talked about a lot of these investigations that he hasn't announced um, that, that we're pretty sure are going on. And again, when he's not announcing something that often, you know, means that not that he's necessarily going to find any criminal offense, but that, you know, he's leaving that, that door open um, at the very least. So, mm. yeah. Okay. Michael, what's your overall impression of the office and the work they're doing? Yeah, I mean, it's good. I, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, we report on a lot of this stuff. I think that there is an extra layer of, you know, recognition that comes when an inspector general comes out and confirms a lot of what you've been reporting. Um, it's much harder for the city council or the mayor to ignore when, you know, this office that they fund, that they pay for is coming out and saying, you guys have to change this up. Um, you know, and again, you know, like I said at the beginning, a lot of the stuff he's announced um, is stuff that we've reported on. So, you know, again, I think having that layer of accountability is is a real plus for the city. Mm. You know, the real inspector general, Michael. You're the real, you're the real deal. Yeah. Have a great week, you guys. Thank you. All right. Oh, talk to you in two weeks. Happy Thanksgiving. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Krastel, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor, Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.